This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This is a fantastic turnout, and I hope Doug knows uh, how much of a tribute it is to the influence he's had on the thinking of a large number of people, not only on this campus, but everywhere. It's a great privilege to introduce him. Uh, his family and mine were neighbors on San Juan Hill, Hill for a time. Doug left his house before I got into Hoover House, but we had met on several occasions and actually became colleagues for a while at a time during which I had persuaded him to do some teaching in the human biology program to the benefit of our students. And I saw a great deal of Lori as she moved from bio major at Stanford to science writer, and I'm glad that she and, and some members of her family could, could be here. In Doug's human bio period, he was working on Gödel Escher Bach, hereafter GEB. When the book came out, I not only thought it was a stirring accomplishment, I experienced that voyeuristic feeling of having some association, however transient and tenuous, with a great literary triumph. Nowadays, I get the occasional additional dose of that by getting David Kennedy's misdelivered mail, but fortunately, Doug also keeps me uh, going with more achievements of his own. And indeed, so much has been said of Doug and the power and luster of his intellect in that splendid piece by uh, Glenn Worthy. Uh, there's not much that can be added to it, but there's a question. And the question is, what kind of linguist, mathematician, cognitive scientist hybrid does it take to think up ambigrams, the carinium, metamagical, and so on? Answer a charismatic imagination, and an extraordinary gift for exploring how we think by substitution and analogy, as he explores in fluid concepts and creative analogies, a work product that has grown out of a group he has relabeled as the Fluid Analogies Research Group, FARG, <laughs> one O short of North Dakota. The catalog, more formal then playful like Doug, lists him as director of Indiana University's Center for Research on Concepts and Cognition. My friend Bill Kaufman was one of those whom Doug asked about publishers and other practical matters in the early days of pre-GEB. Bill's company, W.H. Freeman, had merged for a while with Scientific American of the Peel-Flanagan era long-time admirers of Martin Gardner's wonderful Lewis Carolian mathematical games column in that magazine were devastated about Gardner's announced retirement. But when Doug was announced as his replacement in 1981, everyone who knew him said simply, how perfect. His incorrigible playfulness with language and anagrams led him to redo the title to Metamagical Themas. He didn't disappoint us in a tenure that lasted two and a half years. Doug and I talked earlier today about the shared experience of being edited by Dennis Flanagan 
at Scientific American, one of the truly persistent ego restructuring and capable editors of all time. I hope he won't mind my telling a bridging story that has some personal meaning for me. Doug is deeply interested in language, how we use it, and what it tells us about how we think. He had an early experience at the University of Oregon while doing a PhD in physics that had followed a good experience with math at a Stanford, as a Stanford undergraduate and a disappointing one in a math graduate program at Berkeley. And at Oregon, he, <laughs> at Oregon, he happened to develop, to develop a, a sidelong, a, a sideways interest in, in the question how gender is used in language, e.g., how how is it that many of us in that day uh, were saying men when we meant everybody? Now we say guys when we mean everybody, and that's just, <laughs> and that's just as dumb a mistake. So anyway, his, his interest in linguistic sexism, for some reason, linked him to a talk I had given in the very early 80s at, of all things, a senior athlete's dinner at Stanford. I used some data about women's times in events like swimming and the marathon and how rapidly the performance gap between women and men had narrowed. As an example, I compared the Stanford women's 400-meter freestyle relay time in 1981 with the best men's college time of my undergraduate years and discovered that the women were 10 whole seconds faster than the fastest men. Ten, ten seconds is a long time if you count it out, and that's what I did at the Senior Athletes Dinner. It was, it was quite a good talk, actually. And, <laughs> and Doug, Doug put a, a snippet of that in, uh, uh, in his, his column in Scientific American, and I was, I was totally thrilled. It was a far more interesting take on that subject than the snippet in Sports Illustrated at about the same time. That suggests a lot about the exceptional range of connections that Doug is prepared to trace and analyze. The essence of his work has been to understand cognition, how we construct our knowledge of our world. The notion of some core as essential to the way in which uh, we link the features and structures of, uh, uh, of thinking and language uh, is brought out uh, in GEB, in, in uh, uh, the features and structures of three very different creative and intellectual accomplishments. And uh, that speaks to the use he makes of computers and artificial intelligence notions or the problem of translation, which is interested him, or perhaps uh, as a way to explore for some underlying formal structure in the preface to the 25th anniversary edition of GEB, he chided some critics who had seen it as a book about three men. That's a little like saying Moby Dick is a book about whaling. <laughs> GEB is about how animacy arises, and in subsequent work, Doug has explored a variety of connections or braids with that theme between cognition and language, between what is written in one language and then translated into another, between what has left life and what remains. Not only does he navigate those boundaries, he does so with a kind of loving respect that is perhaps best captured by the fact that he and his children, Danny and Monica, now teenagers, maintain an Italian-only household conversation rule as a custom of honoring Doug's beloved late wife, Carol, a fellow explorer of the translation universe. At a time when the university, this one, 
is on a crash course to embrace and support interdisciplinary work. It is especially wonderful to hear from someone who has been there and who has set out new benchmarks for thinking that loops around cognitive science, machine intelligence, art, literature, perhaps eventually neurobiology. You get a picture of his agility and playfulness from some of the titles of his presentations. The architecture of Jumbo, that one's about machine learning. The slippable alphabet, hinge points of thought, speech stuff, and thought stuff. His biography will break the spell check feature on your computer. <laughs> Finally, my favorite from his recent uh, uh, passion for, for uh, translation, uh, you, you'll need to absorb this slowly. Ma Mignon, Cutie Pie, Pretty Dear, Fairest Friend, Pitting Human Against Computers in Poetry Translation, and Guess Who Wins. <laughs> Just think of what we could learn by examining Doug's brain with functional magnetic resonance imaging <laughs> Absolutely non-invasive for those of you who aren't kept to this. Uh, while he's pursuing a, a thought experiment about the relationship between art and, and music, phrenology would never be the same afterward. I will close by noting that not only has he done some remarkably novel and, and intellectually challenging work in the world, he has also, also always been a gracious and kindly and humanistic guide for those who want to explore it. I'm happy to introduce Doug Hofstetter, Stanford BS in Mathematics, class of 1965, the College of Arts and Sciences Professor of Cognitive Science at Indiana University, as well as the director of the program I just described earlier on, under a different name. In his own biography, he thanks Indiana University, in some respects Stanford's institutional parent, for, quote, the fresh winds of freedom generously afforded him by his truly open-minded university. His presidential lecture in the humanities and arts is entitled, Analogy as the Core of Cognition. Please join me in welcoming Doug back to Stanford. I guess I'm a little bit on the spot here uh, after an introduction like that. It was, uh, I have to say, also, Don didn't mention that uh, we used to do a little running together. He used to go up to the dish from the Hoover House, and I remember, well, I shouldn't say we used to. That suggests more than once. <laughs> I, I joined him one time. I was a pretty good runner. Uh, in fact, uh, I still run, and I just ran this, this evening. But... Uh, but it was hard to keep up with Don. In fact, I don't know if I did. And uh, do you still run, Don? Yeah, <laughs> well, I guess that's what happens to us all. Uh, anyway, uh, we've had a lot of experiences together of various sorts, and uh, he certainly did, outdid himself in that wonderful, wonderfully kind and uh, broad introduction. Um, when I was here as, a, as an undergraduate uh, in the early 60s, I was very interested in, in understanding what the mind was. I think I had always been interested in what 
minds did and what creativity was. <clears throat> and uh, I had the experience of learning to program in the early 60s before, well, Stanford had one computer. It was a Burroughs 220 located in the basement of Encina. How many people here remember that? About one person. <laughs> well, anyway, I programmed that Burroughs 220, and then I went on to other programming. But the point is that I got interested in, in how language worked and, uh, and in certain rules for language, and I don't want to go into that very much. My model for uh, producing sentences was was amusing, and it had a lot of amusing things, but it, what it really inspired me to do was to think about what cognition is. It, it certainly was not a model of cognition, but it was an amusing attempt. And, um, and over the years, then, I devoted uh, a great deal of my life to thinking about what cognition is, and I guess tonight I'm going to be telling you uh, some of the important conclusions that I've come to, and I don't know if I can convince anybody but I will do my best. I, ha I will begin with a sort of a complaint. And uh, uh, everything, is in, everything is in focus. Good, that's great. Uh, by the way, I don't use PowerPoint, for better or for worse. I don't know what that means. But <laughs> so you'll have to put up with my handwriting and, and with sloppiness and things like that. Um, and so... Uh, in, in cognitive science, the cognitive science conferences and journals and so forth, they always have, they divide cognition up into all sorts of different pieces. And one of the pieces is always called analogical reasoning. And, uh, and uh, it's usually put together with problem solving. And uh, it's sort of one little teeny part of, of thinking. And I sort of decided that I would put it this way, that uh, analogical reasoning, they sort of... <laughs> is the Delaware of cognition. <laughs> so I kind of feel that that shunts it off a little bit. It doesn't make it very central. Now, you might think that Indiana would be a better name for uh, an, uh, uh, analogical reasoning, but I'm going to be a little bit more uh, daring than that. I'm, uh, and it doesn't mean California either, or Texas, or Alaska. First of all, we're going to get rid of the word reasoning. I don't want reasoning. An analogy has nothing to do with reasoning, or it does a little bit, but not much. I mean, it's just a misnomer, and it's a misconception of what analogy is, and that's what I really want you to understand, and I suppose that's sort of the bottom line of this talk. If we are going to make any connection between analogy and, and a geographical situation, we're going to liken it to the interstate freeway system, and it links everything together. Analogy is the interstate freeway system of cognition. It is not one little tiny zone somewhere off in the side. It's, so that's a, that's a kind of a, a way of, of, uh, that I think about it. I mean, I don't really usually think about it that way. I made that up yesterday, so uh, but it gives you the flavor. Uh, so one of my rules, which I'm sure I will disobey tonight, is don't cover your transparencies. Uh, let everybody see everything, but I may not do that. Uh, we'll see if, I'm, if I, I'm true to my own principles. So, uh, as it says here, I think of categorization. I mean, the, the story about analogy making, of course, has to be a little bit more than just analogy making. So I, I want to sort of show you how things fit together. Categorization is the name of the cognition game, but analogy is the mechanism that creates or un, uh, that uh, allows categorization to happen. By categorization, I mean 
deciding what something is, what the essence of something is. Uh, so now, one could sort of summarize this in a corny little analogy. Again, analogy is the motor of the car of thought, and then we then can even write it down as this uh, little thing. Analogy is to thinking as a motor is to a car. A is to B as C is to D. And this sort of reduces it down to the old standard, you know, A is to B, C is to D. Proportional analogy looks like a fraction. And um, that's very nice. And it's the kind of thing, you know, like... Uh, Shoe is to foot as glove is to hand, and, and these kinds of things that maybe they put on IQ tests and SATs and things like that. Uh, but that's not how I think of analogy either. I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's, again, putting it into a little tiny box and saying that all of analogy is A is to B as C is to D. And, and it, again, it misses the point. Uh, so... I don't know, I can't define anything, and I kind of hate definitions, but I will at least sort of give you a sense. Analogy making is the perception of common essence between two things. And then a couple of footnotes to sort of hedge. Um, I mean, things don't have essences, but what I mean, I, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not talking about some kind of abstract, glowing, philosophical essence. I'm talking about the essence that you perceive at the particular time in the frame of mind that you happen to be in. And, uh, and by, when I say things, it's tempting to think that the analogies are between the things in the external world, but I really want to say that analogies happen inside your head so that they're... they're there are connections between two mental representations. There are connections between things inside your head, uh, which we project to the outside world. And we say these things outside, out there are analogous, and that's very reasonable to do. But I wanted to emphasize how they go on inside the head, and they are between mental representations. Now, uh, I want to give you a, a couple of analogies, some of my favorite analogies. Uh, they're, they're all, you know, an analogies I could give you forever, but... Uh, I'm going to give you a few that I think are, are very interesting and kind of provocative. So I'll begin with uh, when I was a kid. I was eight years old, as I recall, when I found out about uh, exponents. And I was in love with math, and I was fascinated with any new mathematical concept. And I made tables of integers to various powers. I, I filled uh, notebooks with these kinds of things. So uh, one day I was walking through the house and I saw a paper uh, that my dad was reading and he was a physicist and it had math notation galore and I couldn't make head or tail of it but what I did notice was that there was uh, there, there are little things that said, you know, like X sub 1, X sub 2 and stuff like that and I thought, ooh, look at that, these little subscripts. So here's my, here's my little transparency, uh, the red, you, you can get the idea that I saw that uh, my guess was, what in the world, what operation on numbers does this subscripting thing do? If the superscripting thing, you know, puts it to a power, what does the subscripting do? I was really interested. And my dad told me, he said, oh, that doesn't do anything. It's just the way of naming variables. And I was so, so disappointed, completely, <laughs> completely flattened. Okay. Fast forward 40 years. Fast forward 40 years. Um, now I'm a father of a one-year-old daughter named Monica, and Monica is sitting in our playroom pushing the button of the dust buster. <laughs> Having the time of her life. And then what does she see? She sees another button. <laughs> and she pushes it, and nothing happens. And I'm watching her. 
And I go over there. I'm, I'm sitting you know, on the floor, and I get up, and I go over next to Monica, and I push the button, and I open it up, and I show her, this is just where the garbage is. you know. <laughs> and Monica is, of course, completely destroyed. And at that moment, you have to understand, I hadn't thought about this thing with my dad for probably 40 years. At that moment, the whole thing of the exponents and the subscripts comes <laughs> rushing to my, to my head. And, uh, and I want you to, I just want to, you know, kind of spell out this analogy. It's a pretty complicated one. I mean, uh, <laughs> somebody said to me, I guess it was Don today, he said, oh, people make the mistake of reading out loud their transparencies. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I can avoid reading this out loud, though, because it's kind of fun. But I, I've already told it to you, so maybe I won't. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, though, that if you, if you I mean, you know, here is me and all my love of mathematics and the subscripts. And, and this is an interesting line here because I make an analogy. Part of this analogy is an analogy. I make an analogy between superscripts and subscripts. And I think, ah, there's something there. And then I get flattened uh, by my father. Okay. And so here's Monica, and she comes along and she makes an analogy between one button and another. And she's hoping, and then she gets flattened by her father. Uh, who happens to be me, but that's just a, just a coincidence. But anyway, there you go. I mean, it's, it's a, pretty, a pretty complicated analogy. Uh, now, uh, the next one, that, one's, that one is, is uh, what you might call a, a reminding event. And uh, a lot of analogies are reminding events. And I, and I want to say something immediately, which is that a lot of people think analogies are there to serve purposes. They're not there to serve purposes at all. They just happen. That's all. There's no purpose. There's no purpose at all. They just happen. Uh, sure, they, they're, in a certain sense, they're serving evolution. But that's about the only purpose that there is, you think. Um, and uh, I want to give you a, an analogy that occurred to me a few months ago. Uh, uh, I, I was reading a, a, a book that my mother had loaned me by Jonathan Rabban called, I don't remember exactly, something like Voyage to America or Discovering America or something. I mean, he's, he's traveling across, he's, his first chapter, he's traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. I was in an airplane. I was flying back from California to Indiana, and I, we, we were flying on our first leg. We were going to uh, Denver, and, uh, which is uh, perhaps a united hub, I don't know. Anyway, we were, we were going to Denver, and um, uh, so I was uh, reading this first chapter in which he, uh, Jonathan Ravon goes from England, from Liverpool to somewhere in Canada, and uh, he was in a boat called the Atlantic Conveyor, and um, the, they, he was very impressed by the size of this boat and thought that surely nothing could rock it, but the captain told him, no, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a boat is very vulnerable. And, uh, and then, what do you know, but they discovered a hurricane uh, that was, you know, in their pathway. Or it was actually coming up the Atlantic, and it was, and it was uh, going to be right in their way. And so, well, I mean, not very complicated thinking, but here's what they did. There's the Atlantic conveyor, and there's Hurricane Helene. And uh, I, I've drawn this a little bit off because I don't know if they went quite that far south, but I didn't want to put in time and everything. You get the basic idea here. I mean, the hurricane went up, and uh, they went to the south. They deviated a little bit and missed it and, and, then, went up and then turned back up. 
Okay, so I've just read this thing. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about the Atlantic Ocean and this big hurricane, which was, curiously enough, called a whirly girl by the captain. And I'm thinking about this, you know, but I mean, I, it's just part of the first chapter. It's not a major part of the first chapter. It's just something that happens. The first chapter is all about this trip across the Atlantic and so forth and so on. And then I get out at Denver, and uh, I'm walking down the corridor, and uh, as one does in airports, and, uh, and uh, here, here's, a, here's a picture of me, and this is, this is a woman with a suitcase, uh, and she's crossing the corridor, and, uh, and, and I swerved a little bit to the left, and all of a sudden, bang, I thought, hey, I'm the boat, she's the hurricane, or if you wish, the whirly girl. <laughs> And, and this corridor is the Atlantic Ocean. And, uh, and you know, two seconds is, is, is two days or whatever it may be. Uh, and now, I have to explain to you also, this event inside my head happened so quickly and so fleetingly that I would not have even noticed it if I weren't kind of an inveterate observer of my own thinking. I mean, I caught it, you know, it would have disappeared in a flash and it, to, have no, to leave no effect on the world at all. But here it is, leaving an effect on all of you now. <laughs> My point is, analogies happen all the time for no purpose. They're fleeting, they just, they're, they're transient, they just appear and go away. Okay? It just, it just, your mind is filled with them. Uh, now, to get, you know, the poster that was made used these two photographs, which were taken at... Uh, uh, my parents' ranch uh, back in the 80s, I believe. Now, various people may have thought various things about them, and I'm just going to tell you what, what is here. The upper one is in the summer, and there's this lovely oak tree that I know very, very well, casting its shadow under the you know, noonday sun, more or less. The lower one is in the winter, and there is no sun at all. It's a cloudy day. What is that pat pattern, that dark thing under? That is... A, sh a snow shadow, if you wish. That is the absence of snow. Uh, the snow has fallen, but it didn't go through the tree. Uh, it got caught by the tree, and so no snow is on the ground. And that dark patch is the absence of snow. And it's a kind of a generalization of, of, of a, a shadow. I, you know, to me, it was just a sort of a trivial uh, connection. But I, it joined in many other kinds of shadows that I've thought about over the course of my life. I mean, I know that in eastern Oregon and maybe other places there is what they call a rain shadow, uh, which is uh, to the east of the Cascade Mountains for some 100 or 200 or some miles, there's a, a desert. In other words, the Cascade Mountains basically stop the clouds from moving, and, and, uh, and so there's no rain to the east of the Cascades, and that's called a rain shadow. Um, and, uh, and there are uh, all sorts of other kinds of shadows that I'm not going to go into. Shadow is a very common metaphor, people being in the shadow of their parents or the, in the shadow of World War II and so forth and so on. Um, but I want to just make a curious little uh, analogy that may be uh, a new insight into the world, uh, which is that, uh, well, firstly, th this idea that we're expanding the word shadow expanding the word shadow. That in itself is, is 
part of what I wanted to tell you, that by seeing new instances of shadow, we're expanding our sense of what the word shadow means. This happens to be maybe my personal sense as opposed to a public sense, but it mean, it's no less valid. But I wanted to say that um, we could look at the picture of snow and maybe deduce something about light. We know that snow is made out of flakes, and we might just guess that because there's an analogy between light and snow, maybe light is made out of flakes. It's kind of a crazy idea, but we'll call it the light flake hypothesis. I suppose it's, it is a fairly light and flaky hypothesis. <laughs> but uh, Hofstadter, 2005. Maybe we'll come back to that. Uh, another shadow. This is one of my favorites, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll stop shadows at that point. Um, I was talking with a friend who's, who's Italian, and his brother uh, is a professor at some university in northern Norway. And I said, oh, my God, it must be awfully cold up there. And he said, no, actually, it's pretty warm. And I said, how can that be? And he said, well, you know, the Gulf Stream, the Gulf Stream uh, is warm. And I said, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's very far north. He said, yeah, but it goes north. And, and I said, but uh, he says that the interesting thing is that it, where it's cold is southern Norway. And I said, how is that? He said, because the Gulf Stream is blocked by England. And so I, I had this picture in my mind. There's, I don't know if you can see the Gulf Stream, which is supposed to be red here. And, uh, and it gets blocked by England. And so the shadow of England is on the coast of southern Norway. And, and the Gulf Stream hits the up, upper part of Norway. So we have a shadow thrown by England. Uh, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the Gulf Stream. So it's, again, uh, a wonderful abstraction of shadow. This is the kind of thing that analogy does to our concepts. Now, so here is uh, just, you know, th this simple idea that uh, repeated analogies expand concepts. Um, I've taken as an, a, the concept of number here, and I'm not going to go into it in any detail. I just simply want to say that Anybody who's done any math knows that we begin with the positive integers. Uh, we learn to count. Then we learn about things like a half and a quarter and so forth. And ev eventually, we learn about zero and the negative numbers. And then after many, uh, and all of these are analogies. These are all, all generalizations that are made through analogy. And as we, as we progress and go further and further, we get more and more abstract, and so I've indicated some things here, e and pi and e to the i pi and aleph sub omega, different kinds of infinities, and I could include matrices in there and, and on and on. Uh, and so we have uh, all sorts of numbers, and, and, and they could keep on going. Uh, concepts expand over our lifetime, and they expand for each one of us, and they expand for our culture. Uh, one of the... Uh, key points that I want to make here, though, is that although concepts expand by seeing new instances, sometimes we have a concept that has only got one instance. But even there, it starts to spread and leak. So let's talk about that a little bit. The, the basic idea here is there is no fundamental difference between a single memory trace and a category, by which I mean a concept, no difference, category, concept, same thing. Okay, that's a very important idea of this talk, and, and I'm just going to give you uh, a thing I call pluralization. So I'll read these out loud because I think that they're amusing. So there may be two or three young Einsteins among us tonight. Okay, what is a young Einstein? That's a pluralization of Einstein, clearly. Milton Babbitt is no Mozart. 
if you happen to know who Milton Babbitt is. If, if another Chopin was born in Lompoc, what would happen? Uh, it's the next catcher in the rye, or the Soviet Union's Vietnam, the Paris of the Middle East, which was once the name of Beirut. Uh, Some place can be, actually, I once heard Jerusalem being described as a mecca for tourists. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of treacherous quislings. Uh, notice I've gone to the lowercase here. Uh, Mecca with lowercase, even though it, it comes from originally one thing, it's, it gets pluralized. And Quisling was a Norwegian uh, foreign minister or a prime minister or something who, who I think collaborated with the Nazis. I don't remember the details. But it became a lowercase word for basically a traitor. Uh, and, um, and then Galileo, I, I don't know the, the details of this, but I, I, I have to assume that it was Galileo who actually used the word luna in the plural and with a lowercase m. Uh, in other words, talking about what he saw, uh, he, he, he equated our moon with those things, those dots that he saw through his telescope and called those moons. And that was an, a, a, a magnificent leap that pluralized something that nobody had ever, ever considered to be other than one unique thing in the world. So pluralization is a way in which a single entity becomes a, a, a wide category. And there really is no difference between a single entity and a category. Okay. Uh, so I guess I'm just saying this again. There's a, no fundamental difference between seeing something as a category, category member and seeing something as analogous to something else. In one case, something evokes a concept which has one instance, and in another case, something evokes a concept which has many instances and which has blurred together. Uh, now, we come to another very special thing about human minds. Our minds are constructed, oh, this is no, not new to anybody, that, uh, the, with a, an unlimited quality for chunking. By that, what I mean is that Primordial concepts in some interrelationship become uh, a larger unit, a larger conceptual unit, like you know a family or something like that. And then a family can get incorporated into something larger. And, and we build our concepts by taking several concepts, putting them together, putting a membrane around them, and then, sort of miraculously, the internal components sort of disappear. And we're left with just this new concept, which is kind of like a black box. We don't think it so much about the, the... These things become semi-visible. They're sort of lurking in the background. But if it's structured at many levels of a hierarchy, the concepts inside the concepts inside the concepts are certainly just about invisible, and it really takes some unpacking to, to get there. So um, as we build up concepts, they get hierarchically larger and larger and larger and more and more complex. And I wanted to just give you one example that I thought was really very interesting. And I haven't even touched, scratched the surface of this one, but, I, but take a look at it anyway. Take a look at this. This is the notion of a hub for an airline's I mean, it's just an, an attempt to show you how we begin with concepts that we acquire when we're very, very young. And I've put here things like ball goes to roll, 
role to wheel. Wheel gives you spokes and hub and gives you the notion of centrality. I'm not saying these, these arrows are not necessarily analogy arrows. These arrows sort of represent the idea that this thing is sort of part of that concept. It's sort of gotten incorporated, glommed into that concept. And not precisely, I'm not, I don't have time to spell it out, but I want you to see this as a series of, of higher concepts that are glomming together lower ones. These are the lower ones at the top. Excuse for that reversal of directions. But anyway, uh, so bike <clears throat> is a vehicle. A bike has wheels. A car is a vehicle. A bus is a vehicle. Vehicle, another type of vehicle is a plane. Uh, then that a, a plane can lead you to an airliner. A bus is kind of like an airliner. Airliner leads you to the more, more abstract notion of an airline. Then we have names, which we learn when we're very small. Names suggest that there are things that come in different types. Then we learn about brands. Then we learn about companies. And a, an airline is a particular type of company. Uh, moving. And then we have the idea of a trip. And then a trip can be broken up into legs. And legs can be uh, sort of formalized into routes. And uh, that's attached to airline. It's also attached to a network, time, appointment, uh, timetable, chart. The network, and then this notion, this abstract notion of network goes to node, and then we have to get, get. So that's something pretty primordial, get. And then when we're very small, we also learn about buy. Please buy me, you know, money we learn about. And then later we learn about economizing and saving money, and then we learn about sort of downsizing and how companies have to downsize. By the way, notice I didn't even put, I forgot the whole notion of city, and the whole notion of airport, I didn't even put that here. I mean, just imagine all the concepts here that are, that are all required to go into the concept of hub. And yet when we say, you know, Denver is United Hub, do you think about all this stuff? It's, you don't think at all. I mean, it's, it's, you, you, you know this as a chunked concept. And uh, so it's a very important part of how we think. Uh, so I, another point is that there is no fundamental difference, though, between thinking with very, very basic concepts and thinking with these very large concepts because the very large concepts become as familiar and we don't see inside them. We don't deal with all the stuff that's inside them. Uh, so some of the primordial concepts are these uh, and some of the more sophisticated concepts are soap opera, hub, sleazeball, wilderness protection legislation, or scientific break-even for laser fusion. Uh, complicated things, but if you're familiar with them, they're just very ordinary. They're, they're as familiar as the back of your hand. I thought I'd illustrate some rather complex concepts, uh, just for my amusement and yours, to show you how amazing our human conceptual system is. Um, so uh, indulge me with my reading this slide out loud. I'll go down vertically. So we have the solar system, the concept of a slam dunk, a beltway, plagiarism, jazzercise, laissez-faire economics, eth ethnic cleansing, the domino theory of, of communism, <laughs> the next line, Bose condensation or Bose condensate, the Wikipedia. Now, I want you to think to yourself, how many levels of structure to explain the Wikipedia would you have to, you know, if you were to try to explain that to somebody from 2,000 years ago, what would you have to tell them in order to get across the idea of the Wikipedia? Uh, I mean, you have to explain computers and networks and the web and an encyclopedia and publishing and who knows what all. Uh, uh, 
Okay, dot com bubble spam. It's hard enough to understand what a Republican and a Democrat are. That's a very complex concept. Gas war, the final four, Y2K, the genetic code, quantum cryptography, a baby boomer, chick flick, wasp, the Fed. I have no idea what the Fed is. I have no concept. A gravitino, I also have no concept of that. I know it's supposed to be sort of some sort of supersymmetric partner to the graviton. Uh, pork belly futures, that's a great one. Fishing, with a, with a PH. Radar trap, affirmative action, grocery store checkout stand, presidential lecture, and wacky walk. These are concepts that we deal with very easily, very fluently, and they are so far removed from the concept network that an ant might have, or that a, a mouse might have, or that a dog might have, or that a four-year-old might have, or that a, even a 12-year-old might have. So you have to think how many levels there are. Now, we are talking about concepts at many, many levels. Uh, primordial words, simple words, some compound words, phrases, proverbs. I'm going to come to this. I'm going to sort of illustrate these. Uh, and, then, and then a lot of our concepts are totally unlabeled. Like, for example, my concept, whatever it was, of what happened to me when my dad told me they don't do anything. They're, they're just names of variables. That was stored in my brain, and it was waiting there to be triggered by some event in the future. What was the event? Monica on the floor with the dust buster. I mean, and, and uh, you know, that was a concept. It didn't have a name. There's no name for Doug being disillusioned by his father about subscripts not being analogous to superscripts in mathematics. <laughs> I mean, that was a thing in my brain. It was a node. It was there in some sense, or I don't know if node is the right word, but it was there. It was, it was retrievable under the right circumstances. It shared essence. I hope you will agree with me there. It shared essence with Monica's disillusionment. Now, then, so we have a lot of different kinds of things. I'm going to talk about these other things, Me Too's in particular, and scientific leaps. I want to go through this a little bit, talking about how analogy making retrieves one thing at each of these levels. I'm not going to go through them all, but I just want to, you know, name some primordial concepts. I won't read these out loud, but notice, by the way, in this list, that I am not favoring nouns. I want you to understand that when I talk about categories, I do not think that categories are always visual things like, uh, you know, overhead projector or shoe or, you know, even audience. Uh, categories can be things like, as I said, please, please. Uh, what that means is there are certain circumstances where that word is evoked. The circumstance evokes that mental concept. It's a please circumstance. There are certain circumstances, if I said please to you now, it wouldn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. But if, I, you know, if I'm a little three-year-old and I want something and I say please, it makes sense. There are certain circumstances where it is appropriate. And I'm trying to point out here that words of all sorts, whether they're adverbs or prepositions or pronouns or verbs or nouns, they are all categories, and they're all equally good. And most of them are not visual. Most of them, a lot of them are not sensory whatsoever. And theories uh, uh, of 
uh, of categorization mostly are involved with visual categories, visual objects. It's so mistaken. That is not where the action is. And uh, one of my colleagues, who I respect very greatly, said that he thought um, that categorization at this kind of level is very, very straightforward. It's just a matter of feature detectors. And I think, oh my goodness, what a, we are not on the, from the same planet. I don't think categorization at that level is anything to do with feature detectors. Um, I mean, maybe they play a little role, but it's not, it's really, that's another thing, that's for tomorrow, that's not for today. Okay, simple concepts, you know, those are primordial, here are some, you know, they're getting a little more sophisticated. Chair, I remember there was an exhibit of chairs at the San Francisco International Airport some years ago, wonderful exhibit of crazy chairs, and then I got books of chairs, you can buy books of thousands of different kinds of chairs, and the variety is, is mind-boggling. The same for the letter A. And uh, tell me, the, tell me the, uh, the, uh, the features of a mess, if we're talking about visual categories. What are the features of a mess? I would like to know which neurons, which feature detectors in my brain fire when I see a mess. Uh, what, what about the feature detectors for the word probably or for probably situations? And how about for probably which um, we say sometimes and other times we don't. What are the probably situations as opposed to the probably situations? And it's a subtle distinction. Come on! I mean, well, my point is here, with a word like well, I don't know what part of speech that is. It might be an interjection or a, I think it's something like an interjection. Maybe it's an adverb. It's a little blurry what it is. But that's not my point. Uh, my point is that these words that have nothing to do with visual categories, visual objects, these are evoked by circumstances. There are well situations, and you know how to use them. And if you saw a well in an essay written by a foreigner, and, or in an email written by a foreigner, you would say, ah, oh, they don't know how to use it right, or they would put some other word in there. They should have put in well. You know, you know where the word well goes if you're a native speaker of English because there are well dot, dot, dot situations. And the same for high, kind of, but anyway, no kidding, and so forth and so on. Um, compound words, uh, getting a little bit more complicated. Again, I'm not going to read you this list, but just giving you a sense of compound words that are typical that we use all the time. Uh, some of them have two components, some of them three, four, five, six. It's a little blurry, it doesn't matter. Uh, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they sort of know no limit. Uh, phrases. Uh, so uh, let me just give you a few phrases that I happen to think of today at random. We all know these, and I'm not going to read them out loud. There but for the grace of God go I. Pretty pleased with sugar on top. I think that's a nice one. Been there, done that. Uh, well, I can't help but read, well, excuse me. Uh, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, that's for sure. And those, these are evoked by situations. These are categories. These are categories. And I want you to understand that all these things are mental categories. Um, and how do we judge whether uh, the category, may, the situation that we're facing is a member of this category? Guess, analogy. Proverbs. 
Okay, so I've listed a few proverbs, random. What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I don't say that one very often, but I do say, speak of the devil all the time. Damned if I do and damned if I don't. I say that all the time. Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. I, I called that a proverb, but, you know, it's, maybe it's not exactly a proverb. Uh, maybe I miscategorized that. Maybe I made a bad analogy here. Uh, it's all Greek to me. Back to square one. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, and so forth and so on. Okay, uh, I got some of these ideas. In fact, I was deeply influenced by an article that I read in around 1975 by Joe Becker, who's here tonight, called The Phrasal Lexicon. And Joe pointed out that what we have in our head is far, far richer than a set of words when we talk about our mental lexicon. And I, I can't possibly do justice to his delightful and stimulating article. I mean, very, very inspiring article. Um, and one of his principles was that the article should apply to itself. And he took a lot of the idioms that he used throughout the article and talked about them and listed them in his lists. I've always uh, followed that example. Um, but proverbs, this is something that Roger Shank pointed out. Proverbs are situation labels. We use them to... we we. In fact, sometimes proverbs are boiled down into just a single word, like sour grapes. I know that sounds like two words, but I see it with a hyphen. Um, uh, sour grapes. You know, somebody, somebody didn't get a job that they th said they wanted, and then they said, oh, it probably wasn't, wouldn't have been interesting to live in, you know, in Edmonton, uh, Alberta, or whatever that is. Is it Alberta? Yeah. I wouldn't want to live in Edmonton. Sour grapes, you know, it's sort of one one word. Uh, now, I'm going to go down to the really one word level, and I want to talk about the analogies that I had to make when I went to Italy to the, uh, well, it's a, a research institute in Trento. Uh, I spent a year there. It was a very austere place, a very nice place, but rather austere, and there were people at many levels, bureaucrats, scientists, students, uh, people walking the corridors. And I never quite knew who people were. They would say hello to me, and I couldn't quite figure. And so the question that I had to face, at, you know, from the very beginning uh, was, what do you say to these people when you run into them in the corridor? And you don't even know quite who they are. You recognize them, and you sort of know who they are. You have spoken to them, and you know definitely who they are. You know their name, or you know them pretty well. They're kind of a friend. You've eaten lunch with them once, or you've, you are a friend. And naively, being American, I would say ciao. Uh, that was wrong. You don't say ciao to people that you are not on familiar terms with. I mean, ciao is something that you can say to somebody that you say tu to. But you don't say ciao to, you know, the, the director of the institute. Uh, you, you, that, just doesn't, that just doesn't work. You say buongiorno or you say salve. And salve is sort of intermediary. And um, I, I learned this, and, uh, but, but I nonetheless was not a native speaker. And every time, at every moment, as I was walking down the corridors, I had to be doing these on-the-spot categorizations. Is this a, a ciao person, a salve person, or a buongiorno person? <laughs> and, you know, and it, sometimes I would mix them up, and I would get them confused. I would blend them. Um, but it was, it was, you know, gradually it kind of got clearer, and I got, and, and I was following the, what I saw other people doing. I was making analogies, um, and not only analogies to what other people did, but analogies between, you know, people. This person is like that person to me, and so I said, okay, so if I say salve to that person, I'll say salve to this person. Um, 
So words, individual words, are the locus of a fight. Every time you try to figure out what word to use, there's a subterranean fight going on, mostly hidden. And I want to just give you a little example of this. Um, uh, my friends Kelly and Dick were visiting my house, and um, uh, they kept on referring to my office. And I kept on thinking, what does my office have to do with my house? It's over, you know, across campus. And then I realized, of course, they were talking about my study. Um, and so uh, we talked about this. And I said, why do you always call it my office when I call it my study? And they said, I don't know, it seems like your office. And I said, it doesn't seem like my office. <laughs> and it seems like my study. And my office is across campus. And, and so then we talked a little more. And they said, well... You know, in our house, on our top floor, where we do our work, where we have our books and our computers, uh, that's where our office. Uh, we have a home office. That's where we do our work. And you have, uh, on your top floor, which is not your third floor, but your second floor, you have computers and you have books, and you do your work there, and it maps perfectly. So to them, it was totally obvious that this was my office. And to me, it was totally obvious that it was my study because I took my dad as my, prime, as my prototype. He, on the upper floor of our house up on Murata, he had a study in which he had his Frieden calculator and his books and his things. And, and it was just like what I did. And his office was down on campus. And so to me, it was, a, I guess you could say, a no-brainer. Uh, and it was very interesting to see that both behind both of our visions, there were analogies. And it showed that word choice is guided by analogy. And I'm going to skip a couple of transparencies here. And uh, uh, I can see I have so many things here, I'm not going to be able to really go through them all. But uh, I want you to see this picture, which illustrates what goes on in word choice. I, I have not labeled the x-axis. But the x-axis in these bar graphs is sort of... Uh, it's, it's a one-dimensional reduction of what you might call semantic space. Semantic space is a multi-dimensional space of concepts. And I've reduced it down to one dimension. I've pretended that there's just concepts along one dimension. And so here I'm facing a situation which might evoke you know, a word like dog. And so dog is the, is the big winner. It's very activated. And, and maybe uh, fox is a little bit activated. I don't know. I'm just making this up. And maybe cat is a little bit activated and so forth. And so there we have it. And, and it, there, it's a big dog is so towers above the others enough that it's a big winner. And there's no visible uh, or audible, I should say, competition. But a lot of the time when we speak, there is audible competition. I want to talk about the audible competition that we hear when we are making, when we are speaking. And so uh, I'm going to talk about word blends. Uh, here's just a few. Maybe these I will read to you because I think they're all nice examples. I have a collection of literally hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of word blends. I, I just picked a few at random today. Uh, and these are, these are ones that I just listened to. I picked them up. Uh, uh, this was me at the... Uh, somebody calls on the phone. Is Danny there? That's my son. I, I don't know. I'll go sec. Uh, blend of C and check. Trivial, everyday, ordinary thing. It reveals competition. It reveals subterranean competition. Okay. Uh, don't leave your car there, I say to somebody. You, you may get a ticket. 
may or might. Now, this is the kind of thing nobody would hear. I mean, I pay attention to these things. It's sort of my profession, and so I do hear them. But most people just don't hear these things. Uh, Danny, my son, I love this one. I can't keep all these things in my bread at the same time. I thought that was wonderful, brain and head. Uh, uh, he also said, hey, wait up, I'll gum with you. That was to his sister. She was about to go to the grocery store. Hey, wait up, I'll gum with you. Gum is a come and go. Just a nice blend of two different ideas. And uh, my administrative assistant, Helga, said, every morning I took a capsi ride. Beautiful, beautiful. And the mayor of Bloomington was on the radio, and he, talk, he was talking about how, how it, we have to be vigilant in, uh, in, uh, in uh, putting in bike paths and other kinds of things in the town. And I thought that was a wonderful blend because it's, it's, it's vigilant and it's diligent, and it also has a little bit of village in it. And... Uh, this is a fascinating kind of thing. Now, I don't want you to think that blends are always that obvious. I want you to understand that blends can be extremely, extremely subtle. Uh, here are some uh, examples. Uh, just two. Uh, but uh, I, these were in the course that I was uh, giving last semester called something like analogy and words and concepts. And uh, I was talking to the class, and at one point I just, I mean, I, I must have made... 500 errors per class session. You know, I, I mean, today, who knows how many errors I've made. They're not discrete things because they come sort of in different levels of strength. But maybe major blend, maybe major errors today I've made 50 and maybe, I don't know, maybe I've made 200. I don't know. But anyway, every day there I was making 500 and I noticed about three because you can't spend all your time monitoring yourself. But I did notice at one point I said, uh, as it says here, I was having trouble finding, finding. The F was a little too lengthy. And uh, I said, did anybody hear that? Nobody even heard it. And I said, well, okay, but I was a little long. And you want to know why? And they said, I mean, I guess they were a captive audience. So... <laughs> So, anyway, I said, I know there was competition in my head, and I happened to know what it was, at least part of it. I don't know the whole story, but at least I know one of the words was find, and the other was figure out. And I couldn't quite decide. Now, how much else was going on in my, inside my head, I don't know. In smide, in smide. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was posed on the banister. It was posed on the banister. It was posed and it was poised. It was just a slightly wrong vowel, slight distortion of the vowel. Now, you see, these kinds of things, these kinds of things, every word that I'm saying probably has a slight error in it. And that's my point. Every word has a subterranean fight going on inside it. You don't know, you don't hear it, even I don't hear it. I'm not privy to what's going on underneath the surface. But sometimes I can feel it, and sometimes you can hear little hesitations. It may just be a hesitation before the word starts. It may be the lengthening of a consonant. It may be the distortion of a vowel. It may be a funny intonation. All of those are revelatory of the fight between words, the analogies that are struggling to take over and to beat the other ones out. Um, phrase blends. I hope I'm coming to an end. Uh, phrase blends. Uh, I won't read these out loud, but I think, uh, well, maybe I'll, these are funny. These, I mean, and phrase blends are not always funny. 
I'm not, you know, one of these people who collect errors because it's funny and you publish it. You know, the kids say the darndest things or whatever. That's not my reason. I think errors are wonderfully funny at times, but I don't collect them for that purpose. I collect them because I'm interested in understanding what goes on in the minds of human beings. So here's uh, in an email. This is typed. This is not spoken. This is typed. I have it still. You know, I hope the package got there in one shape. Okay. Uh, from a native speaker, okay, uh, native speakers, talking. two of them talking in a restaurant, neither of them noticed this comment, I mean, it just went by, no, nobody heard anything, uh, he was a real easy-go-lucky guy, easy-going and happy-go-lucky. This one I said, I should count my lucky stars. I said it on the phone, and then I said, what, is that right? Something, count my lucky stars. <laughs> count my blessings, thank my lucky stars, okay? I mean, just these kinds of things are a dime a dozen. And that was a dime a dozen situation, by the way. Categorized, I put my finger right on the essence there. Uh, this one I, I typed in an email when I was very tired and I wanted to hit the sack. And I said, I'm worried that my editor is going to hit the stack. And I thought that was a marvelous blend of hit the ceiling, blow his stack, and my own feeling that I wanted to hit the sack. Okay. And then... My dean at one time at Indiana University was trying to lure a person to be in cognitive science, and he made this marvelous, marvelous statement that will pull no stops unturned to get him. I mean, this, this is amazing. Um, all right, so I've already said this, but I just say it again because I want you to see it. In writing, every effortless category assignment is actually a seething subterranean battle of analogies. When the battle is a landslide, there's no evidence. When the battle is close, there's evidence galore. Okay, so uh, we're coming really to the end here. Thought is the highest level of abstraction. Seeking, I'm sorry, the highest level of abstraction. Putting one's finger on the essence of a situation and then bouncing back and forth between the actual situation and the essence that one found in one's memories, in one's memory. Now, I'm going to give you an example that I think is quite charming, and it's actually something I found out about last year. I spent uh, a long time in the uh, year 2005 working on in a talk called, well, it wasn't called, but it was about Einstein's analogy making. I wanted to do something for the Annus Mirabilis, 2005, the 100th anniversary, and I had the great pleasure of giving this talk in physics departments in a few places about the analogies that Einstein made, not only in 1905, but in other years. And um, what I was really astounded was I had never known how Einstein created the concept of that we now know as the photon. And it was what he thought of as his most revolutionary uh, ever idea. And I want to give you a sense of how he did it, and I can't, obviously, give you much of a sense of it. But let me at least uh, just give you a slight sense. So we begin with something that was known. This is the, basically what's called the black body spectrum. What it basically says is if you have radiation bouncing around inside a cavity at a certain temperature, there's different amounts at different energies. And there's sort of a, a most amount at a certain pre peak energy, uh, uh, you know, that's the, sort of the, the wavelength, uh, the, the wave, that wavelength or that frequency is sort of the most predominant, and then there's less and less on either side of it. Longer wavelengths are less, shorter wavelengths are less. 
And now there was another situation. Uh, that was the situation that people didn't understand. People did understand the situation of, uh, thanks to Maxwell and Boltzmann, of an ideal gas, an ideal gas inside a cavity where people knew that, actually, they didn't really know for sure, but they thought that the behavior of an ideal gas was due to molecules bouncing around inside, and that they assumed that it was molecules, they could make some mathematical calculations and figure out what the curve should be, and they figured out the formula for a bell-shaped curve that looked like that that said that for all the different kinetic energies that you have, and you can replace kinetic energy if you don't like that word with velocity. So for all the different velocities or speeds that the molecules could have, you know, low speeds there weren't very many, high speeds there weren't very many, but at some intermediate speed um, there were a lot. And, and this was the distribution, and, and it looked kind of like that. Now, not, this was around for anybody to see, you have to understand, but nobody thought about it. Nobody connected these two ideas until Einstein. And Einstein said, this looks similar to me. Uh, and so I think that, you know, maybe it's possible. These thing, this thing over here, the ideal gas, we think as, as being made of, uh, of corpuscles, particles, molecules. And so maybe it's possible that light is also made of particles. And he did a lot of elegant mathematical calculation to, to check this out, and he calculated the entropy of these systems, and I won't go into any of the details. Basically, a bell-shaped curve and a bell-shaped curve, the analogy between those two, like the analogy between my two shadows, the light shadow and the snow shadow. I decided that light may be made of flakes. Einstein decided 100 years before me that, I, that light might be made out of particles. And, uh, and, and that was... The, what nowadays we call the light quantum hypothesis, and that was the most revolutionary discovery Einstein ever made. It came directly out of a simple connection between two bell-shaped curves, essentially. All right, well, I guess I am coming to the end, and all I need to say is on my last transparency. So, if strokes of genius are made of analogies, and personal insights, and political decisions, and dinner table conversations, and Me Too comments, which I didn't cover, unfortunately, and random remindings, and instantaneous categorization, and blends of all sorts, are all made of analogies. Might not all of cognition also be made of analogies? That's the cognition core hypothesis. Remember, you heard it first here. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.